0: In the New Testament, the Greek word diakonos is used 29 times, and almost every time it is translated as simply servant or minister. As believers, we all follow in the footsteps of the ultimate deacon, the suffering servant who came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. When the church was first established, there were only two official offices within the church pastors and deacons. And so let's explore who deacons are and why they are a blessing to the church. Well, good morning. morning. It is good to be back preaching this morning. And I want to thank Perry for uh, preaching the last couple Sundays. And I am extremely excited about this mini-series that we're going to have over the next two weeks. We're going to take a break from Exodus, and um, le- even before I get started, I want to just say thank you for singing that last song to me. Um, being reminded of the, the mystery of Christ and the gospel uh, just set my heart where it needed to be this morning, and so very thankful for that song. I feel like we could just sing that song and go, and, and that would be enough this morning. But today, we are gonna be talking about deacons. And this is something that is long overdue. Why are we talking about deacons? Well, one, like you saw in the intro video, thank you, Eli, for putting that together for us this morning. It's one of the two offices that are mentioned in the New Testament. Deacons are difference makers. And I think it's significant. I, I think we need deacons. And I I hope over the next couple weeks you see why. I I believe we already actually have people here at Mercy Hill that are acting as deacons. We've just never called them that. Um, In fact, like you saw in the video, the the word diaconus in the New Testament is typically just translated as servant or, or just served, minister. If you've placed your trust in Christ as your Savior, then you are in a sense... In a broad sense, already a deacon. Mark 9, 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant or deacon of all. And so the word us is usually just a generic term for servant. But there are certain times in the New Testament where that word is used in a more technical sense. Where it's, men- where it's mentioning the office of deacon. That's what we're gonna be talking about over the next couple of weeks. And like I said, this is long overdue. And I've somewhat drugged my feet on installing deacons at Mercy Hill just because I know that there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the office of deacon. In fact, if I'm honest, there's been confusion in my own mind of what the role of deacons should be, who can be a deacon. And so one of the things that's been really helpful is this book. We we started reading this book a few months ago. It's called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. It's by Matt Smethurst. And we actually have a few extra copies in the back. If you are interested in going a little bit deeper into this subject, I would encourage you to pick one of these up and you can borrow it. I'll just bring it back after you finish the book. But uh, definitely a worthwhile book and would highly recommend it. And one of the things he, that he does at the very beginning of this book, the very first chapter, is he points out, How often we get it wrong. And he points out, okay, this is what a deacon is not. And he lists off six ways that the church wrongly looks at deacons, and he gives them little pet names. It's kind of fun. And so I'm going to give those to you Uh, before we even start talking about what a deacon is. I want you to know what a deacon is not. Okay? So, number one, we're going to put this up on the screen. Uh, It's not, number one, pastor in training Peter okay a deacon is not pastor and training Peter some churches they look at deacons as simply a stepping stone to those who are looking to become a pastor but deaconing is not as he says in the book training wheels for becoming a pastor it's a different office it has a different set of requirements a different aim a different set of gifts and qualifications and so it's not a pastor in training number two It's not toolbox Terrence. All right, toolbox Terrence, some churches look at deacons as those who simply are good at fixing stuff. And don't get me wrong, having somebody and a few people that know their way around Home Depot and Lowe's is a good thing for the church, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily qualified to be a deacon. Uh, Very similar to that, we've got number three, Spreadsheet Sam. Okay, this is similar to toolbox Terrence, being good with numbers is helpful for the church, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're spiritually mature. Uh, same thing with corporate cliff. Okay, Often churches will elect deacons, and I've seen this. I've seen that they will elect deacons because they've been successful in the business world. And so people think, well, if they've been successful in the business world, surely they qualify to be a deacon. But Smethurst says it like this. He says, executive leadership experience can be a serious asset but it is no indication of spiritual fitness and so often we kinda dumb down this office of deacon but on the flip side there are some churches that elevate deacons way too high and so number five is Vito Okay, Vito Vinny is a deacon who thinks it's their job to keep the pastor in check to keep the pastor accountable don't get me wrong pastors need accountability but that's not the primary role of a deacon Okay, some look at deacon board like the deacon board is like a branch of the government that is meant to kind of keep the church in checks and balances. That is not the primary role of deacons. And then finally, number six, there is pseudo elder Steve, and this is the one that I think is most prominent in, in a lot of churches. I, I see this often. Often churches look at deacons as the ones who really run the church. Okay, and so. The, uh, the the pastor, or the pastors, they may say spiritual things, but it is the deacons, they're the ones who are really overseeing everything else in the church. And often this is because the deacons have been there the longest. Okay, pastors tend to come and go in a lot of churches, and so the deacons have been there for the longest time. They have sen- seniority in a lot of places. Now, as we look at scripture, you're going to see that that is not the role of deacons. Over the next two weeks, my hope is that As we look into scripture, we would have a much clearer understanding of the role of deacons. So today we're going to take a look at the origin and the purpose of deacons. Next week we're going to take a look at the qualifications and the responsibilities of deacons. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And while we're turning there, let me give you a little context of what's going on here. In Acts chapter 6, we have the early church, right? They are growing rapidly and now there's some problems okay it didn't take long for the church to have issues and and problems in chapter six they have their first internal conflict and so this is where the office of deacon is born out of And, and you're gonna notice that the the office of deacon is actually never mentioned in Acts chapter six but the verb serve or to deacon is mentioned here and many scholars look at this passage passage as a a precursor to the office of deacons. There's a few things I want you to notice as we read through this passage. First of all, I want you to notice what the conflict is, okay? You're going to see that in the very first verse, and then I want you to focus in on, okay, how is this conflict resolved by the apostles? And I want you to be asking the question, okay, what do we learn about deacons from the resolution? And then finally, in the very last verse, in verse 7, notice the result, notice the result. All right, let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive into Acts chapter 6. Heavenly Father, would you make your name to be treasured in our hearts? As we look into your word, would you cause our hearts to be ruled by your spirit? Would you nourish our souls with your holy word would you would you help our hearts believe we confess that our hearts have wandered have been apathetic towards you and once again we are in need of being reminded of your grace and of your mercy and so father would you keep us from the temptation of making this text about us would you correct any wrong understandings that we might have? Would you give us wisdom as we move forward in eventually installing deacons here at Mercy Hill? And would you, would you increase the capacity of our hearts to serve one another like Christ has served us? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus a proselyte of Antioch. These, they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, let's walk through this passage together. Look back at verse 1. This is the situation, right? This is the conflict. The church is experiencing some growth pains here. In the early church, almost all the converts, the first converts, were Jews. And just like today, there were many sects, different sects of Jews. And so you had the Hellenists, which were Greek-speaking Jews, which meant that more than likely at some point in the past, their family had moved out of Judea, to, to live in the Greek speaking culture. And this wasn't unusual. There were many Jews that left Judea for greener pastures after Alexander the Great had conquered the land. And it was around 330 BC, 333 BC. And, and so these Hellenistic Jews that have been raised in this Greek speaking culture, eventually some of them would move back to. Jerusalem, but when they moved back, they often faced discrimination because people looked at them as sellouts. They looked at them as as liberal, as compromisers, as people who have been influenced by this Greek culture, the the Greek philosophy, the pagan religions, and and so in this early church even, even though they've trusted in Christ, they've been united together because of Christ, there's still flesh, right? There's still sin in their hearts, and so there's still this conflict that comes up and in the early church some of the Hellenistic widows these Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food and if you think about it back then being a widow is more significant than it is today being a widow back then meant that you had zero resources and you totally relied on other people to help help you in fact often widows in the New Testament and in the Old Testament are listed right along with orphans as people who are in need of charity And so the apostles are faced with the first internal conflict within the church. And the way in which they handle this conflict, I think, is a good template for us. They handle it really well. Verse 2, you see the start of the resolution. The apostle gathered the disciples together. They explained the problem. They explained it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I want to pause there and just mention that they are not saying that serving tables is beneath them okay that's not what they're saying they're they're saying okay it's wise for us to focus on what we've been primarily called to which is the preaching of the word and so they wisely delegate verse 3 therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute so good character good reputation and that they would be full of the Spirit well what does that mean well make sure that they are believers first and foremost in whom that you've observed the Spirit manifest himself. Now perhaps he's talking about some kind of miracle through the Spirit but more than likely what I think he's got in mind here is that you see the fruit of the Spirit in them. You see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. He mentions specifically wisdom that they would have good judgment. Uh, Next week we're going to talk a lot more about the qualifications of a deacon. But what I think what we can learn from this passage here today is that deacons need to have a good character. Why? Because they're gonna be dealing with people, they're gonna be ministering to people. And so they need to have good character. In verse 4, we see that the apostles felt that they needed they explained what they needed to focus on, the preaching of the word and prayer. And and I think this mirrors what pastors ought to be focused on primarily it's not the only thing that we do but our primary concern should be preaching and prayer Verse five the congregation affirms the recommendation from the apostles and so they pick out seven men now I don't know that the number seven is super significant here Uh, I I don't think this is a prescription for how many deacons we should have as a church in fact I I don't think Acts chapter 6 is a prescription on how we ought to elect Deacons. Some churches look at this and that's how they view that we should elect deacons. I don't think it's meant to be that, though. I I do think, though, that there are some general principles here that we are wise to follow. For example, I think there is wisdom in both the elders and the congregation being involved in the process. I I think potential deacons should be evaluated by the congregation before they are ordained or or set apart for this ministry. I don't think deacon elections should be like a popularity contest like they are in a lot of churches where you have a huge list of potential deacons and you have to vote on which ones you think are are the right ones. I don't see that here in this passage. In fact, if you read the uh, commentary on this passage, you'll quickly learn that the seven men that are chosen all have Greek names, and I think that's significant. The congregation felt that it was significant, and it was important that these men, yes, have good character, but also that they would be qualified, that they would be uniquely and especially equipped to care for these Hellenistic, Greek-speaking widows. Now, in verse 6, you see the ordination. They bring the seven before the apostles, and the apostles lay their hands on them and then deploy these men for ministry. Now, this is similar to what we see in other parts of Scripture. For example, Acts chapter 13 and the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas. What did they do? The, the disciples, they fasted and they prayed and they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out on mission. Often, now let me say this, laying on of hands, I, I do think it's symbolic. There, there's a blessing that's happening there. But it also seems that this is a means by which the Spirit empowers people to minister. Often in the New Testament, the result of the apostles laying their hands on someone was some kind of manifestation of the Spirit. And and so Paul, in writing to Timothy, he encourages him to fan into flame the gift of God that was given to you by the laying on of my hands. And so laying on of hands, it's it's still practiced today in the church as a way of commissioning and commending people into ministry. And and I don't think there's like magic in, in this act, but... It's very similar to like baptism or uh, communion that we take every week, that it's a means of grace. It's a physical representation of a spiritual reality that God uses to strengthen our faith and empower us for ministry. Now I, I can still remember my ordination when the the leaders of the church came and they laid their hands on me one by one and, and encouraged me and, and I remember how powerful That was in my life and and in that moment I believe God was using it to prepare me and encourage me and strengthen me for the task ahead finally in verse 7 we see the result And, and the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith and so because the apostles were freed to be able to focus on what they've been called to do, the, the preaching of the word, what happens? The word increases, the number of disciples multiply greatly, and surprisingly, even many of the Jewish priests were converted. Now, I don't think these are the same like henchmen that we see in the Gospels that were part of the Sanhedrin, but I think these were men that were very devoted to being a Jew. And yet God opens up their eyes so that they become aware and awakened to know their Messiah, because the Word of God is being preached. So there's several purposes of deacons that rise out of this text that I want to mention. Number one, and we're going to put these on the screen, the purpose of deacons. Number one, deacons help to unify the body. Instead of the early church becoming fractured because of this conflict, the deacons were deployed to care for the marginalized, and they united the church because of that. Secondly, deacons care for... The tangible needs of the congregation. They, they care for the physical needs of the congregation, which number three frees up the elders to focus on the spiritual needs, preaching and, and praying. And then number four, uh, deacons are to, to be lead servants. I've heard it said this way that the deacons lead by serving while, while elders serve by leading. And then five, and most importantly, the purpose of deacons is to mirror Christ, which is really what I want to wrestle with today. Jesus, the ultimate deacon, the ultimate servant. In Isaiah, in the Old Testament, how does he describe the coming Messiah as a suffering servant? And then you come to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 20. There's this situation where the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she comes to Jesus and she's requesting that her sons would be able to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus is like, look, you don't know what you're talking about here. You don't know what you're asking here. And some of the disciples hear her asking this and they get frustrated. They get indignant. And so Jesus calls them all together and he says this. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Or more literally, the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. Jesus didn't measure greatness like the world measures greatness. the, The world measures greatness by how much service one receives. Jesus measures greatness by how much service one gives, and no one has ever given more than him. Other than the cross, what comes to your mind as a picture of Jesus and him serving his disciples? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Perhaps for me, it's when he washes the feet of, of his disciples. And uh, So you got the Last Supper. Jesus gets up from the table. He takes off his robe. He wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. I mean, think about that. That should blow our minds. Here we have the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, kneeling down like a servant and washing their dirty, filthy feet. Peter's so shocked and confused by this that at first he just refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet. He's like, Lord, you're gonna wash my feet? And I think he's implying, look, I should be washing your feet, to which Jesus replies to him, look, if you don't allow me to wash you, then I have no share with you. And Peter changes his mind real quick. and He's like, okay, wash my whole body. whatever it takes. Now, after Jesus finishes washing their feet, he he turns to his disciples and he asks them, do you understand what I just did? Do you understand what's going on here? And he says this, he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And what Jesus did here, I think, becomes even more significant if you remember the context of what's going on. First, this is the Last Supper, right? Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He knows that he's about to be hung on a cross. He knows that he's about to absorb the full wrath of his heavenly father. He knows that even though he's innocent, and yet he's about to pay the penalty that we deserve. And in the midst of this tremendous weight that he had to be feeling in this moment, he is not consumed by what's about to happen to him. His heart is totally for his disciples, full of compassion, wanting to serve them. And second, Jesus knows that his disciples are not worthy of this act. They are totally, completely unworthy. He knows that they're all about to desert him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him three times. He knows that the feet of Judas are tired and dirty because he just ran an errand to go set up his own death and torture. And what does he do? He washes his feet. That's our Savior. That's the heart of our Savior. He looks at us, unworthy, rebellious sinners, and he's not repulsed. He's drawn to us with compassion and love and grace and mercy. I think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, talk about a rebel who experienced the love and the mercy and the compassion, the forgiveness of Christ. I mean, he, he murdered Christians and, and Jesus looks at him and he like, yep, that's the guy I want. That's the guy I want to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And Paul, dwelling on the mercy of God, he writes this to the church in Philippi. We're going to put this up on the screen. We read a little bit of it already. This is chapter 2. Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, how do you do that? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Listen to this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is already you. His spirit dwells in you. And then he describes Christ, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a, a deacon, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In this book, I'm going to quote uh, Smethers. He's commenting on this passage, and he says this. We'll put this up on the board too, up on the screen. Philippians 2 resounds with the news that even though God the Son had it all, the worship of angels, the infinite love of the Father and the Spirit, He still came from the splendor of heaven to the squalor of a stable. And on a lonely night in a little town called Bethlehem, He began a journey of obedience to His Father, a journey that would culminate 33 years later on a hill outside of Jerusalem where he would suffer on a Roman cross for rebels like us. And what compelled him? Indescribable love. Indeed, greater love has no other than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. There is no no more perfect example of self-giving sacrifice, I love this part, than the one who left heaven when he could have stayed, and who stayed on the cross when he could have left. You see, deacons are a precious gift to the church because they mirror Jesus. And so a deacon's ministry finds its origin and its purpose ultimately in the life of our Savior. And so let's pray that God would give us wisdom as we move forward in clarity. Father. Thank you so much for giving us the gift of deacons that mirror our Savior. And I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would raise up more and more deacons, and that all of us would have the heart and the mind of a deacon, that you would continue to increase the capacity of our hearts to serve one another as Christ has served us. So I pray that we would worship the deacon of deacons and the Lord of lords and the king of kings today as we remember the sacrifice that you gave for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can't think of a better example and a better way to remember the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ than, than celebrating communion together. We get to see and eat the gospel together as family. So during this time, if you're a believer, I'd encourage you to, to join us in the celebration. The juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. The bread represents his body given for us. And so during this time, I would encourage you to celebrate and be reminded of the sacrifice and the service that He has already given us and that He would propel us to serve one another as we've been served. This is also time. If you need prayer, I'll be in the back. It's time for us to give generously, sacrificially, sacrificially, joyfully. Uh, The box is up here. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated. Uh, If you're watching online, you can give online. This is also a moment if you've got questions. If you've got questions about salvation or what it means to be a member here or baptism, please don't leave today until you get those questions answered. We'll stick around as long as we need but you come as God is calling you to respond. After we've taken communion together, we'll stand, we'll worship together and continue to sing the gospel.